This episode is sponsored by Teledyne Princeton Instruments, producer of cameras and spectrographs for detection of light, from X-rays to the infrared. Princeton products are trusted by scientists around the world for their ease of use, reliability and high sensitivity. Visit PrincetonInstruments.com to find out more. Physics World Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and it's December, which would ordinarily mean that we were freezing in the shed at the bottom of my garden and talking about the Physics World Book of the Year. But this isn't an ordinary year. By no means is this an ordinary year. And because it's not an ordinary year, we're not freezing in the shed at the bottom of my garden. Uh, But I'm delighted to say that I'm not alone because joining me from the Physics World team are... Margaret Harris, Kate Gardner, and Tushna Commissariat. Hello, everybody. Hi, Andrew. A different year, an extraordinary year. I know that quite a lot of our listeners love the Physics World Book of the Year, love this December episode of the podcast. So let's put their minds at rest. Why aren't we doing it this year and what are we doing instead? Well, Andrew, as you mentioned, it's not been an ordinary year. Uh, And obviously, thanks to the global pandemic, uh, the publishing industry has been impacted in many different ways. And one of the (laughs) impacts of that is that it's been a bit hard to get books out to review. Um, There was obviously at the start in sort of April, May, kind of that that time, it was really hard to get any any kind of physical books. Uh, and even now, publishers are more keen to just send digital copies and physical books take a lot longer to follow in the post. So it's been a bit harder to quickly organise um, reviews. And obviously, people have also had different kind of commitments in their lives. So it's been a bit harder to have our usual plethora of book reviews and so we included a bit more but a few other bits like a bit more film and tv this year and so we thought that instead of doing a book of the year specifically um we would just get together and talk about art of the year books films and tv things that made us feel good this year um that helped um, shine a bit of light in these somewhat dark days. So rest assured, uh, if you have tuned in, hoping for the book of the year, hoping to fill in some gaps on your Christmas lists, or perhaps presents you're buying for other people, there's still plenty of that in this episode, and some books. And I think we should begin um, with looking at artificial stupidity. I'd like to say there's been quite a lot of actual stupidity this year. And uh, but there's a book that uh, Margaret you looked at, um, which is well your uh, review of it is entitled Artificial Stupidity. Yeah, yeah. So this is a, a book by Janelle Shane, and the book is called You Look Like a Thing and I Love You: How Artificial Intelligence Works and Why It's Making the World a Weirder Place. And I actually um I actually requested and got this book last Christmas from my brother-in-law before I knew that Tushna wanted me, me to review it. So when Tushna was like, hey, Margaret, will you review this book on artificial intelligence? I was like, yes, of course, Tushna. I will spend work time sitting in my hammock, reading this wonderful book that I would have wanted to read anyway. That's what I did. Um, <laughs> and so as the title, uh, the title itself comes from uh, an AI-generated pickup line. Now, you could reasonably ask why someone would want to ge- ask an AI to generate a pickup line. And the, the answer really is, A, that it's really funny. Uh, because AIs are not good at generating pickup lines. Uh, but it's also that, that the mistakes they make um, are sort of instructional. 
Um, so the examples in, in Shane's book are generally, they're not generally funny for the sake of being funny. They're funny with a purpose. It's like the, the tagline from the Ig Nobel Prizes, which are sometimes given for research that first makes you laugh and then makes you think. A funny example um, is that if, if, you know, you know if, you, if you like search in Google or something, there's an autocomplete function that if you start typing something, it, it will uh, autocomplete it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's done by AI. AI has, has analyzed the, the, the data from lots of different searches and seen what, um, what people are likely to type. But the thing is that if the search engine autocomplete makes a really hilarious mistake, humans will tend to click on it, which just makes the AI even more likely to suggest it to the next human. <laughs> and uh, this example, this, this happened in 2009 with the phrase, why won't my parakeet eat my diarrhea? <laughs> <laughs> and, and humans found this suggested question so hilarious that soon the AI was suggesting it as soon as people began typing, why won't? <laughs> really? Yes, yes. Uh, that was I me. Mean, that was more than ten years ago. Now AIs have got better, um, but yeah, I mean, this shows that that you know AIs are not thinking about things in any meaningful way. They're using shortcuts. Sometimes their shortcuts are funny. A lot of times their shortcuts are actually quite serious. So um, predicting what crimes or accidents may occur is a really tough, broad problem. And identifying cop and copying bias, for example, in how policing is done. That's a much easier task for an AI to, to do. So and that's, that's what AIs do tend to do in, in those cases. I, could, I can give you some more examples. Yes, please. Okay. Another example from Janelle Shane's book is that when Volkswagen tested its, its self-driving car AI in Australia for the first time, they discovered it got really confused by kangaroos because apparently it had never before encountered any obstacle in the road that hopped. <laughs> It was not expecting an object in the road to start hopping, and so it didn't know that it was meant to avoid <laughs> that object. This is actually a really common problem with AI image recognitions, not, not kangaroos necessarily, but just anything the AI hasn't seen before. Um, a couple of years ago, back when we were going to presentations and conferences in, per in person, I went to a, a talk at an APS March meeting by a physicist working on Google's self-driving car project. And he made precisely this point. There are these edge cases that are really hard for AIs to deal with. Uh, the example he gave was a person hired to stand on the side of the road, as, as people do sometimes, and advertise some kind of event that was going on nearby. And he showed a, a video of this, this person, and the dude was holding up a sign and doing a funky dance. He was all over the place. And now a human could see that this, is, this guy was just new, was not a crazy person who was about to run out into the road and it was not gonna become a traffic hazard, but an AI couldn't tell. So it's really, really hard to train an AI um, to recognize that kind, those kinds of weird edge cases. Mm. Yes, it's a funny thing, isn't it? I, I always think that we're sort of, sometimes we're, we're really expecting too much of AI and sometimes we expect too little of it. I think in terms of um, pickup lines, I don't think any human has ever come up with a good one, have they? Yeah, I mean, you look like a thing and I love you is probably better than anything I've heard, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kate, Toshna, any good ones you've heard at all? Uh, probably not suitable for the Physics World podcast. Shall we leave it at that? <laughs> yes, all the ones that come to, to my mind are a little not clean. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Anyway, this is uh, You Look Like a Thing and I Love You. How Artificial Intelligence Works and Why It's Making the World a Weirder Place by 
Janelle Shane. Yeah, and so if, if you're a physicist and you're interested in AI, um, I can say that um, next year, 2021, May, uh, Physics World is doing a special issue about AI, uh, particularly with, with physicists in mind. And this is really important because I'm actually in my formal role as Physics World's industry editor. I heard a story about a startup firm that was trying to combine AI image recognition with an automated feeding system for zoo animals. Uh, I've changed some of the identifying details in the story, by the way, because I was told it in confidence. Um, anyway, the idea was that if a tiger or whatever came out to the feeding station, the AI would be like, hey, there's a tiger, release the food. But this company was having all kinds of difficulties with this, and the physicists they brought in to advise them said, um, why don't you just use a heat sensor? Because thermal sensors are really well-established technology, and they're very simple. And if you're trying to feed a tiger, there's basically nothing else that's going to get in the cage that's big enough to put out that much heat. And if it does, it's probably going to be tiger food anyway. So, you know, there's definitely situations where AI is not the best solution. It can be a gimmick. So look forward to um, exploring that, that and other topics in more depth in May. Well, artificial intelligence is a subject which comes up in science fiction quite a lot. And science fiction is very close to my heart. Another topic which seems to be coming up more often in science fiction these days is quantum technology. And there have been some quite interesting books to do with quantum this year. Tushna? Yes, indeed. So quantum is definitely a very popular topic for popular science books. As I'm sure our regular readers already know, we've had lots of... Um, the winner of Book of the Year, was it last year? I can't remember now. I think it might have been a year before, actually. Uh, Phil Ball's Beyond Weird. So we've had we've had loads of quantum books. Potentially, I've not reviewed as many this year, but we've still done a good few. But um, I think there's two that I'd like to mention. Um, one of the books was uh, a review quite early in this year from 2011 winner of our book of the year with his excellent book how the hippies save physics oh sorry 2012 maybe 2012 so yes david kaiser he published a book called quantum legacies dispatches from an uncertain world um i like the uncertain world bit especially for 2020 but the book was published quite early in the year so i don't think he quite knew um this is this is it's it's definitely an interesting book but it's a bit it's a bit of an anthology of um articles that david has written previously it's part of his lecture series and other posts and things that he's written so he's collected that into this one book that looks at um quantum fundamentals really uh, and that is that is an area that's really becoming quite interesting right now because as we are poised on the brink of this quantum technology revolution that hopefully will come in the next decade or so, or we'll see the first true steps of it in the next decade. Um, there's a lot about quantum fundamentals that we really still don't understand. There are warring schools of thought that have been around since the days of Bohr and Einstein. Um, and there's been a lot around that. So, so David's book focuses quite a bit on that, but he kind of likes to talk about what Phil Ball, our reviewer, describes as the intellectual fashions. Uh, and he also, some of the most interesting things in the book are around the teaching and publishing of quantum science textbooks and how they reflected changing attitudes. And so he makes a really interesting point that in the 1920s and 30s, when you had teachers like um, Oppenheimer around, they genuinely wanted to talk to students about these sort of 
um, bits of the nature of quantum mechanics that we do and don't understand. But by the time the 1950s came around, after the war, uh, we fell into the sort of shut up and calculate where it was just about that. And the textbooks and the teachers reflected this change and it, it became less about the nature of philosophical questions and more about just get on with the physics. So that was a really interesting chapter in the book, according to Phil. So yeah, so I, I recommend Kaiser's book for someone who's looking into uh, fairly detailed, I would say, background in quantum mechanics. And the second book that I'd like to mention is one that I reviewed. Um, it's only gone online two days ago, the review, so it's a rather recent review. And this is a book called um, Synchronicity, The Epic Quest to Understand the Quantum Nature of Cause and Effect. Uh, and it's written by physicist and author Paul Halpern. Um, this was a strange one. Starting from the, the title of the book itself, um, that's actually a fun question. Andrew, Margaret and Kate, do all of you know what the word synchronicity means? I recognise it now you mentioned it as a term from Jungian um, psychology, which yeah. I know that um, Wolfgang Pauli was really into, like Pauli and Jung were, were, were good mates back in the day. Indeed. Uh, but I don't know exactly what it means. Mm. I think my only understanding of it is from reading your review. <laughs> I think my only understanding of it comes from, I think it was the name of a police album. Mm. So yes, absolutely. Um, Margaret's uh, right on the money there. I somehow did not know about this sort of close friendship and relationship that Jung had with Pauli, um, but apparently it is fairly well known. This might be down to Margaret um, reading a lot of history of physics and me not as much. <laughs> yeah, you give me all the physics of history because it's not you usually your bag, is it? I do, I do. <laughs> But then there's stuff like this and I'm like, ooh, I want to know more. So yeah, it turned out that Jung was good mates with Einstein initially and then through Einstein poorly. Um, and so the word synchronicity was something that he came up with in the 1920s after he hung out quite a bit with Albert Einstein. And Einstein started talking to him about relativity. And so... Jung decided that he wanted to come up with some, he wanted a connecting principle between cause and effect, but something that was completely a-causal. So, so for him, it was this idea that there is a collective unconsciousness of human experience. Um, you know, his main philosophy that uh, that's linked to our dreams and thoughts and behaviours, but somehow that could be linked to things that happen in everyday life even though it's a completely a-causal link. Um, and he kind of described it in many, many different ways um, through his life. He described it as an a-causal connecting togetherness principle, a meaningful coincidence, a-causal parallelism, um, uh, all, all of which sound rather wooey to me. Yes. <laughs> And me. Uh, yes. yes. But what's really interesting about this is that Paulie was really all for it. Now, it, from everything that I knew and read about Paulie, he was, to me, he seemed like such a staunch realist. You know, what I know 
most about Paulie is his most damning put down phrase, not even wrong, you know, like now it means non falsifiable, but he apparently said it to a student to say that his paper was so awful and the claims that he made were so ridiculous that it was it went beyond being wrong. It was that nonsensical. And so I you know, when I was reading this book, I had to reconcile that Paulie with this same Paulie who believed in these meaningful coincidences and that somehow they were quantum. Um, but of course, as the book revealed more of this, that in the 1930s, Pauli had a lot of um, trouble in his life outside of his science. His, his marriage had fallen apart. He was um, an alcoholic and he had some significant mental health issues. And it was his father, actually, who suggested that he get therapy and who suggested that he go to, to, to Young for it. And so he became a patient of Young's and he, you know, of course, Young at that point was all about dreams. And so Paulie apparently had this unbelievable knack of remembering every dream that he had in great detail. And he used to have these crazy dreams <laughs> every other night, apparently, of like, there's some really great details. I can't quite remember them now, but there were some excellent details of his dream journals in there and, and what he thought. And he had very scientific dreams sometimes you know he was in a hall giving this lecture and people would ask him these questions that were really uncomfortable and things like that so so synchronicity kind of focuses a lot on this idea but of course um this is about four or five chapters in the book and then there's a lot of other um actual quantum mechanics and science and in fact part of me felt that maybe he could have just focused on that story of, of, of Young and Paulie. But then as it turns out, there are other books written on that subject, including Arthur I. Miller's 137, which was purely based on this, which was some, a book we reviewed in Physics World in 2009. Uh, yeah, so, so I can see why he maybe didn't write another book just on that. But it was a really interesting book. So if you're looking for something a bit different, but with enough of... Um, quantum background then maybe synchronicity is the one for you and also I'd say you should read my review of it if only to see how I managed to involve an Alanis Morissette quote into a review about <laughs> quantum mechanics <laughs> I'm intrigued I'm intrigued I haven't read the review I'm going to go and do that now of course if you're listening you can go to uh, the web page for this particular episode and we'll post links to anything we talk about on that page on the physics world's website physicsworld.com now i just want to go back to dreams just slightly because I, can i just check there is no causal link between <laughs> dreams and reality is there no, no, i mean there is in that we dream about sometimes what's happened in our lives beforehand mm. yeah it is much as the the components of our dreams presumably come from what we have experienced, whether that's in real life or stuff on the TV. But yeah, the, the way it's put exactly. together in a dream, I don't think really has any causal link to anything. No. no, yeah. no. What I can tell you is that I broke my leg last week and I've had every single night very vivid dreams, probably something to do with the codeine, <laughs> about um, things to do with legs. Lots of falling off buildings, out of windows, doing overhead kicks in football. <laughs> All of which means that in my sleep, I move my leg in a way that I shouldn't be moving. That's so good. It wakes me up. And that's why I remember the dreams, because you remember the dreams that have, you know, you just, uh, you were just having at the moment when you woke mm. up. So um, there's definitely a causal link in that direction. I can see that. Um, if I'd been having those dreams 
before I broke my leg and then broke my limp thing, I'd be uh, becoming a Jungian philosopher before <laughs> the day was out. Uh, but there is the, this is kind of, I think, um, cause and effect in quantum is at the heart of devs. The It's an HBO series, isn't it? I watched it on BBC iPlayer. And Kate, you've reviewed it. I did, yes. Tishna asked me just before Easter, would you like to review this TV show? And I said, I was planning to watch that this weekend. What a good time. <laughs> um, yeah, it's um, it's a great show. I highly recommend it. So it's science fiction based around a sort of big tech company in California, um, which has at its heart this quantum computing division called Devs, um, which we gradually discover is trying to use a quantum computer to predict everything that has ever happened and ever will happen. Um, which is an interesting interpretation of quantum mechanics. <laughs> it really doesn't work that way. No, no. And they, they do come up with some convincing sounding arguments for why it would work. Uh, but um, we actually discussed in an earlier podcast, myself, Tushner and, and Phil Ball, the reasons why those those arguments don't actually hold up. But it's a very entertaining TV show with some amazing um, actors. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's, Absolutely, got, yeah. it's got that guy from Parks and Recreation. <laughs> it does. Ron Swanson being very, very different from his Parks and Rec character. <laughs> Much more ominous. Um... <laughs> there's, there's definitely times in there when you start to empathise with his motives oh absolutely absolutely yes 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 he has very good reasons for wanting to uh but so so basically as as kate explained but just adding to that what what devs goes with is a totally deterministic universe that if you could somehow determine on first principles then you could just build the whole universe forwards and backwards and they take that a step ahead by saying that if you have a really powerful quantum computer that can do that you could almost simulate a universe and, and, and potentially live in it in some shape or form so it, it really it I mean what what was really great about it is that it took these very complex ideas put them to a really interesting narrative, then brought in these characters, none of whom seem to have very straightforward motives, and each one who you suspect at some point or the other in different ways. You know, there's there's this sort of ominous, hippie Ron Swanson character, and then there's the lead who you're also a little bit unsure of her motives at the start, and then there's her partner, who's this slightly sketchy Russian, as it turns out. So there's a lot going on, but... What was interesting though, is that the, the complex quantum um, wound into their personal narratives in a really interesting way. Also, what's really amazing, and I'm sure Kate will back me up on this, as will you, Andrew, is that the entire look of it is fantastic, right from where they film in the Redwoods in California to the unbelievable quantum computer cube, which looks a lot like um, D-Wave. Yeah, they'd, they'd visited quite a lot of the sort of big um, tech companies in California to get that sort of campus feeling right. And it is it is really convincing that those scenes where they're walking around these huge sort of modern buildings with the big glass facades and, you know, the sort of funky modern breakout areas where they're discussing quantum physics over a cup of coffee. It's yeah, it feels it's not like very 2020, right... though. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> 
if they make devs in the future, they're going to have to have everybody like working from home in their home <laughs> offices. <laughs> That's true. There's a certain amount of people who have to end up working from home in various different ways during the program. Mm. But there's, uh, I don't want to do any spoilers. It does, it does look beautiful, and I think it's beautifully paced as well. Mm. Yes. It's Alex Garland, isn't it, the director who's you know the beach and ex machina, mm, yeah. and it has this kind mm. of. Uh, those beautiful, almost slow pacing. It's, it's been criticised, yeah. I think, for um, for how slow it is. But I think that it's wonderful how it's. Been. Yeah, absolutely. Because otherwise, that that last the last two episodes they could have made into one, but it was the really slow pace and where the second where the penultimate episode ends with what you think happens versus how it finally, and there, there is they've got a fun bit of sort of timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly in their narrative style going on, which I really like. <laughs> um, and, and sort of they show you these bits. And also the the bits of where they're trying to explain to you what they're trying to do with a quantum computer, etc. Um, the, 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 the filming of that is just just stunning. There's a, there's a particular scene with a mouse or a rat, especially, which sort of you keep seeing bits of it from the start right up to the end and then it finally makes mm. sense and you're like... Ooh, I, proper mind blown. I quite like where they show the sort of multiple possibilities by showing the same scenes yes. happening in multiple ways at the same time. So you've got the same sort of two or three actors doing several different things in the same room at the same time, just playing out to music. It's it's really beautifully done. Absolutely. And, and and those are the times when like, so I watched the whole thing and then I watched it again at a much more sort of relaxed pace where I wasn't <laughs> frantic to find out what happened next. And that's when I could really appreciate little details like the light in the rooms and how even even that was a part of the narrative, depending on how the character was feeling, etc. You know, whether there was warm sunshine or whether it was cold and grey and dark and the, the music and everything. It just just really worked it's just it was one of those things that I got perfectly sucked into uh, and even though there were issues with the science etc I thought they did a really good job and especially when you compare it to say um Garland's Sunshine and the <laughs> awful I couldn't stand that film because I thought the science was so bad <laughs> that I was just like even though it was beautiful I got very frustrated with that one whereas with this I was just along for the show I tell you, you know? I think it is mm-hmm. it is scientifically frustrating but it is incredibly beautiful sunshine isn't it i think because it reminds me um when i was watching devs at the same time i'm watching uh, not literally the same time but <laughs> at the same time that would be an incredible achievement quantum superposition exactly. of tv watching <laughs> but um, we need to sort that out with everything that's on tv at the moment it's just we need it uh, but i was watching um, his dark materials right? mm. and I was also interviewing for the Physics World Stories podcast, Ryan Babish of Google, who is mm. doing quantum research. And he told me that his computer that he's working on uh, is, looks like it's kind of an upside down R2-D2. And <laughs> I think it mo- looks more like a, an upside down Dalek, which, you know, mm. similar. in his dark materials, they have an upside down, well, they have a quantum computer that looks like an upside down um, Dalek. And I don't think... In, so his dark materials mm. is the Philip Pullman novels. For yeah. people who don't know, it's been turned into a uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it turned into a television series very, very well. I saw an interview with Philip Pullman, and he says that he was saying in that interview, "We need to interview him, don't we? Let's sort that mm-hmm. out." We do. It's it's on the list, Sandra. It's happening. So if we have uh, listeners who are excited about that, keep keep an eye and an ear out next year. 
that's on the list. Uh, there was um, uh, in the interview, he said that science is is sort of a a treasure trove of places for stories to spring from, oh. and um, that's kind of I think just the best way to look at that. Not for the first time, Philip Pullman finding the best way to look at things. <laughs> and, um, but is that how you see it? Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with that. I think so. His Dark Materials were books that I absolutely grew up on. You know, had a huge impact on me as a, as a kid. And so I remember when when he was talking about the science in there, and when they sort of in in the Oxford that is in our universe in the books, uh, they go to this lab. And what they what they study, what was really interesting was he wrote about um, they were studying dark matter particles that's what the the scientist Mary Malone is doing in her lab and of course when he wrote these books in the in the sort of mid to late 90s that was the most exciting thing on the forefront of sort of science and so I can see why he picked that but of course Philip Pullman as as any um, sort of any anyone who listens to him regularly he is a huge fan of science and he absolutely also loves quantum mechanics and multiple worlds which is another significant part of his um, book series and so it's not surprising to me now that when they're making the TV series now that the computer is a quantum computer or looks very much like a quantum computer even though that wasn't what was explicit in the books then. I, I, I don't think he ever mentioned it as a quantum computer. But then in that universe or his multiverse, there is already the multiverse. So you're just a hop, skip and a jump away from a good old quantum computer, aren't you? And also, I feel like I have to say this because it was so terribly exciting for me and Kate when this happened. Um, you will have to be the most eagle-eyed of people. But if you completely ignore everything else in, in, in about two episodes of the series right now and focus only on the desk in Mary Malone's office, you will spot a corner of Physics World in there because they asked us to send some copies to dress the set. And uh, I must admit that they asked us sometime last year and Kate and I have been waiting until this year. And so when those episodes came out and we knew that they were the ones in our Oxford, I spent the entire episode just going, where is it, where is it, where is it? Where is it? I see a surface with some kind of paper on it and I had to like go back and watch the episode later and focus on it but Kate spotted them before I did it took a lot of pausing to yes. find it but yes I found just the corner of our logo physics world is officially part of the his dark materials universe thank you very much that's a beautiful thing <laughs> that's a beautiful thing I, I don't need encouragement to watch it again but I will do um so that's devs it's his dark materials it wasn't supposed to be but there it is in the podcast <laughs> So we are recording this in 2020, and I don't think there's been a more difficult year for trust. Yeah, if we, if we could have a parallel universe that doesn't involve this, this this mess, that'd be nice. Yeah. That, sounds, that sounds perfectly ideal, but in the absence of a parallel universe, if someone has a knife that they can just cut through the air and I can step into another universe <laughs> where I have a little animal companion... That would be amazing. I would totally have a guinea pig. And uh, but actually, I could just walk through the door there, and there's four guinea pigs. So I'll do that. I was going to say, I was going to say, Andrew, that. But um, let's get back to the topic, which is why trust science. 
Um, White Trust Science is a book by Naomi Oreskes and Tushner. Well, it's not by you. Sorry, I, I sounded like it was by you. It's not. By you. I would be. I would. I don't think I could be any more chuffed if I had co-published a book with Naomi Oreskes. But unfortunately, that again isn't in this universe. <laughs> Maybe in some other. Um, so you know, Naomi Oreskes is a very well-known and well-established science historian. Um, Probably readers might be quite familiar with another book of hers, um, 2010 book that she co-wrote with Eric Conway called Merchants of Doubt, which was again about trust and science, another really interesting book. And it sort of exposed the, the deceits of the denialists, is, is how Phil puts it in his review, um, Merchants of Doubt. But so, so she's written this latest book called Why Trust Science? And it is kind of... Um, so she's a she's a uh, professor at Princeton, and so it puts together a series of her lectures from Princeton. So I quite like that. That for those of us who can't go to Princeton and enrol in Naomi's course, um, reading Why Trust Science is a way to do it. Um, but I mean, a lot a lot of the book is focused on climate change, which is obviously you can see why you can see why talking about trust and science is so key to climate change but of course so the book came out kind of very late 2019 or early 2020 if I remember correctly uh, and I don't think that she had the time to re-edit and put in anything about Covid but of course by the time we reviewed the book in um, April we were in a Covid universe and so it suddenly made all of the points that she was making in there that much more important and crucial. I mean, well, first of all, the book opens with a bit of a primer on the philosophy of science. And Phil says that all scientists would do well to read this. And this is this is something that I think is sort of an opinion that's becoming a bit more popular now that more and more scientists really need to learn about the philosophy of science and need to realise that there is a lot of middle ground between the sort of proper notion of falsibility, of, 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 of falsifiability falsifiability um and then of course thomas kuhn's idea of paradigm shifts you know i think scientists tend to be in one or other camps or sort of but there's a lot of middle ground and and philosophers of science have realized that it isn't as easy as just these two very separate paradigms yeah effect. exactly exactly and so i think it's more that people realize that science is um kind of like a makeshift affair and that but it's and and while there isn't one universal method, there is enough built into the scientific method by this point about self-correcting that it is mostly good. And so Oreska says that there are sort of five factors that you need for reliable knowledge. And the key ones are method and evidence, which is, you know, part of the scientific uh, method. And then you have consensus, but you also have um, values and humility. And so she says that when science has gone astray, it's very often because powerful scientists lack the humility to listen to all the evidence, you know, and that's when it's gone wrong. And that's something which I think is really interesting. And I think a lot of scientists would do well to hear that. She also, you know, makes it a really important point to say that, like, people love to say that values shouldn't be a part of science and it's, it's just about fact and not personal opinion. But that just flies in the face of everything that we've seen about the history of science and how important, you know, 
social dialogue is, you know. So there's this great quote where she says that many scientists have made the mistake of thinking that people would trust them if they believed that science was value-free. Um, and it's not. It's not because it's done by scientists who are human beings, after all, you know. Um, she also completely sort of spends a bit of time dismantling the notion that science is a meritocracy, which is, again, something that's been coming up a lot in recent times uh, that it only rewards excellence and then there's no need for initiatives of diversity and inclusion um, she makes it a point to say that the diversity of viewpoint is precisely what makes science so powerful so then if you're not allowing for that to happen uh, science suffers as a whole I think that's uh, yeah that's a fascinating book I'll definitely pick that one up I think as a science communicator as uh, somebody who lectures in science communication, it's um, it's a, always an interesting uh, discussion how we communicate the uncertainty of science, because that uncertainty can be pounced upon by who, people who are deliberately trying to sow doubt in it. Absolutely. The more that we kind of successfully communicate what that uncertainty means, the better it will be. Absolutely. Yeah. It's that. It's that old story of all all the um. All the people who are, you know, anti, oh, I don't know, anti 5G and anti um, Einsteins and round earth and satellites and what have you are all there on their iPhones using the satellites to tell us that it's all a lie. Yeah, but I have to say that it's a, it's a thing that's been uh, also recently with vaccines and COVID-19 and things. It's really um, very easy to get very cross with people for the way they see things but it's also very easy to forget that as scientists or people who are interested in science we've got years of understanding behind us and for a lot of people this is the first time that science is sort of well, one of the few times where science has ostensibly obviously been part of their lives and they've Absolutely. built up a distrust around it they, they haven't gone they don't know how vaccines work they don't know all that stuff so they're just coming at it from a very different angle. So to understand that we're sort of, in, in, in terms of the understanding of this thing, we're in a, quite a privileged position when we're kind of talking to, to people. I, I have to be honest, I find it quite hard. That is the yes, way we need indeed, to, to go. Indeed. Which is why it's so important to talk about, the, you know, to teach so much more relevant science to young people young children so that you have that that sort of scientific understanding built in from a young age so you understand how the world works and you're not completely dazzled by it later on <laughs> and it would be so easy to do because i remember so often in school science you don't get the exact result in the textbook mm. but we never had that conversation from our teachers to explain that that is intrinsic and that that would have been such a useful lesson to have but we were always made to feel as if we failed if we didn't get the exact results that we were looking for and it's, it's such a missed opportunity absolutely but this is something that even science doesn't like talking about you know science doesn't like talking about all the ways in which you don't make a light bulb they only talk about the ways in which you do yeah. 
And this is something that science is learning too. You know, I know for a while now that we've been talking about having journals of results that don't pan out. Exactly. And it's yeah. Ways not to synthesize this material. <laughs> exactly. It saves so much faff for everyone, doesn't it? And it's, it's the same in code now too, that people say that they want to, here's all the code that doesn't work. We've tried to do X, Y, and Z. Mm. This doesn't work. So don't. So I guess we're learning. I guess we're learning. I think sometimes we science is so advanced, but yeah, in other situations, how you how you explain these amazing advances and the things that we can do now, um, so that it doesn't seem crazy or godlike or like aliens <laughs> are involved or something. It's rarely aliens or a god, as far <laughs> as we can tell. Just, uh, I'd have to say, just while we're on here. I just had a pop-up because I've only got one website that pops up on my computer when a new story has come up. And it is, of course, Mm physicsworld.com. And the story is, what are the chances of life existing in the clouds of Venus? Which reminds me that my very favourite interview, no offence to everybody else this year, but my very favourite interview that I did this year was with Professor Sarah Seeger. And Mm -hmm. uh, we were talking about the... Uh, discovery of potential signs of life in the clouds of Venus. Quite interested to read this new story that's come up, which uh, <laughs> updates us on that. Um, but I noticed that Kate reviewed Sarah Seeger's memoir, The Smallest Lights in the Universe. I did. Um, so we, we said earlier that we were going to talk about some happy, bright points from the year. It must be said that this book made me cry. So perhaps not entirely a happy point because um, she takes as her sort of centre point the death of her husband when, when she was just 40 years old. Um, and she weaves around sort of the story of her relationship with him, the story of her career in astrophysics. Um, so she's a, a, a very successful, well-known astrophysicist um, now at MIT. Uh, Her specialism is uh, exoplanets. Her career began um, coming up with with new ways to search for them and she sort of moved into looking at the the gas signatures from them so that we can learn more about exoplanets. And I'm sure if she'd written a book just about that, that would have also been a great, fascinating book. But I actually really liked that this, this book is a mix of memoir and the science that she studies. And she does go into some of the detail of the science, uh, but she also includes how um, her marriage was was struggling because she was working such long hours. Uh, she includes the, the struggles she had to find a workplace where she felt comfortable, particularly earlier in her career, um, there were a few times when she felt taken advantage of by uh, older, more established physicists who um, there, there's one time when uh, a colleague of hers inadvertently gives away, I suppose, uh, details of their research before publication, which was then pounced on by by someone else who, who had uh, their paper accepted in a you know a top journal and was celebrated as being the first to discover something that they weren't the first to discover 
Um, and she at the time accepted that as well. It's early in my career, but she started noticing a, a pattern of this. Um, so there's some really interesting detail about that, about how science works, how perhaps because she's a woman, she, her experience of, of, of being a physicist was different. Um, she also talks a little bit about a uh, late in life diagnosis of autism and how that helped her to understand herself and her reactions to other people and to the world differently. Um, and also the uh, grief of over her husband's illness and, and then death and having to raise her two sons alone or trying to and discovering that actually she needed an army of people around her to, to help with that. And that, that I think it's all really important because it, it makes the point that um, we've already mentioned that science is done by people. Science doesn't just exist on its own. And you know, she, she is a human being. Even, she's a human being who loves her job and at times has been obsessive about it and put in extremely long hours and ignored everything else in her life. But she is still a human being and human things have happened to her that have affected the way she did her job and the decisions she made about her career and what she would study. So I, th I think it all comes together into a, a really interesting story to be told. No, no fascinating. And it, that's why I loved the interview with her as well, because of her humanity, but mm -hmm. also the science that she was talking about, the life mm. of you know, potential signs of life in the clouds of Venus doesn't get more exciting than that, really, does it, in terms yeah. of astronomy and things. Yeah. Talking about uh, sort of the humanity of scientists and especially sort of talking about maybe um, how it is to be a mother and, and, and also, um, well, in this case, an astronaut at the same time. Um, there's been a couple of uh, bits of sci-fi this year that have focused on that particular relationship. One of them was the Netflix TV series Away, but one that we reviewed, Andrew, you reviewed, is Proxima, which was the... Um, latest film by French director Alice Winokur and uh, that was a really interesting one Andrew wasn't it because uh, we watched it together during lockdown and of course when I say together I mean in our houses separately just you know uh, chatting about it later on together. Um, Morally the same but not spatially. Exactly exactly um, there was a lot of I'm at three set three minutes and two at, at the beginning of the film where are you okay hit play together in three two one. <laughs> Um, do you want to tell us about that? Because it was a really interesting thing, wasn't it? I, I do want to tell you about it, but I also want to just um, just flag up the fact that whilst I did review it, I, I think it's a massive exaggeration for me to just have my name as the byline in that review, because you did a lot of work in that review too, Tushna, and I think you deserve the credit for it, so I'm giving it to you here. Here's a little clip of my interview with Alice Winnicott, the director. Some people, especially in French cinema, uh, sometimes they have those autobiographical stories. But to me, I have to project myself in a very distant and unknown world. And uh, in the process, I'm always first attracted by this world that I want to discover. Uh, for my first movie, it was like a psychiatric hospital in the 19th century. And uh, then the second film was soldiers getting back from Afghanistan. So it can be very different type of things. And I'm, I'm drawn to it. I don't know why. And then, and for this one, I, I've always been fascinated by space, but 
I didn't know anything about that world. I'm neither a fan of of uh, space movies, but um, I had a poetical attraction for space, and so I decided to go to Cologne, and then I started to meet some people, and I told them that we could do a film about a woman astronaut. So that's Alice Winnicott, the director of Proxima, talking to me. You can hear the rest of that interview on the Cosmic Shed podcast at thecosmicshed.com. But uh, the film, I have to say, when I watched the film, well, when we watched the film, there was a certain amount of upset, a certain amount of, um, yes, I think that's the right word, upset, when we finished. What, what was the upset from your point of view, Tosh? Well, I, I wasn't I wasn't upset. Well, I wasn't upset at the thing that I think you're referring to. I was more upset at the blatant sexism the lead character faces throughout the film and the fact that she is forced to overcome so much as she is preparing to leave the planet for a long, long mission to um to the moon uh, and that she's struggling so hard to maintain a working relationship with her young daughter at that point so that her daughter isn't totally isolated so that's what upset me I think what you're referring to Andrew is about isolation and maybe which was very relevant then when we were watching it really uh, about the concept of quarantine yes because in the there's without you know doing too many spoilers there's uh, somebody escapes quarantine um, which at the time that we were watching it, we were in the middle of the lockdown, which everybody observed, apart from if they needed, you know, eye tests, in which, in which case that was fine. But everybody, apart from people who needed eye tests, observed that the first lockdown. And um, it just felt really shocking to me to see somebody um, leaving quarantine, which is there for a very good reason. Um but I did put that to Alice Winnicott. So let's hear what she had to say about that. You know, quarantine, of course, as you know, space is to prevent astronauts from virus and germs, uh, but also uh, to prepare them to, to leave the planet, to get to leave the atmosphere. And uh, there's a kind of, uh, you have to get used to silence. You have to get out of the community of humans to prepare yourself, not to death, but to leave, to leave our world. And uh, it's really, and uh, in the lockdown, it's I think something that everyone has experienced, this meditation thing about, you know, you, you start to, to, to pay attention to things you didn't like, you, you didn't know, like, for example, I was like filming insects, insects like uh, you know in the garden and uh, suddenly I realized oh that's one shot of my movie of something that the character herself is doing before leaving the earth you know that she she's paying attention to nature and uh, all of those kind of details you don't really pay attention to uh, when there is normal life. Sarah's character breaking the quarantine I think before lockdown, I would have had a different view of it. But now I'm like, I can't believe she's doing that. And I kind of get why she's doing that, but I can't believe she's doing it. Yeah. What's gone? I think um, um, it's something really I imagined. But then when I met real astronauts, one of them, Annalie Fisher, who is a very famous astronaut, first mom in space, 
told me that she had escaped quarantine in Houston at that time uh, for Halloween to do trick-or-treats with her daughter because wow. she wanted to spend more time with her before. Because, you know, there's a, of course there's the risk of not coming back, you know, it's a kind it's just really scary even for astronauts, like the day of launch. So yes, she had escaped. And a lot of, a lot of astronauts have escaped, like Jean-Francois Clairvoy had escaped also to see his son uh, who was very ill at that time. And he didn't know, he had decided to leave, but he didn't know. I mean, there was of course a risk not to see him when, because he had a cancer. And many more stories, because I think we don't really know if I think some people have trouble with this idea of escaping is that people don't really know, even now when they, we have experienced quarantine, what is a quarantine for, for astronauts? It's not like a kind of prison. It's more something like if there is guard, it's more like to prevent from journalists. Uh, but of course, astronauts don't want to leave, you know, it's just like, uh, and it's very hard not to see your family. So a lot of them do this. So I think it's fair to say, Andrew, that Proxima really sort of was something that left us sort of pondering the lives of all of us here on Earth and, you know, sort of our place in the universe. And um, if there was one person who ever really made us feel simultaneously really big and really small it was Carl Sagan you know uh, and probably one of the most wonderful things that we had this year in the review section was a book written by his daughter Sasha Sagan um, called For Small Creatures Such As We Rituals and Reflections for Finding Wonder and genuinely, it was one of those things that you reviewed for us again, Andrew. And it was just so lovely reading it. Um, you interviewed Sasha too after reviewing the book. And it just left all of us with such a warm, fuzzy feeling. So tell us a bit about that um, so that we sort of end 2020 on a positive note. Okay. Well, I, yeah, so Sasha Sagan is the daughter of Carl Sagan and Andrea. And... Um, in terms of science communication, you couldn't get two better parents, right? I mean, it's, you know, the, this this uh, Cosmos series, both the original uh, Cosmos series and the more recent one, Andrian's been involved heavily in writing both of those things. Uh, personally, my very favourite book of any type um, is Carl Sagan's Contact, which is a science fiction book so heavily influenced by the science that he was doing and researching um, at the time uh, that it's just a beautiful thing both as a scientist and as a as a lover of humanity and the book itself is dedicated to Sasha Sagan who was young at the time and the dedication at the start of the book is um, to Alexandra may we leave this world better for your generation um, than we found it for ourselves. Question is whether they have or not. I mean, they did their part in it. It's whether the rest of humanity <laughs> has has done so as well. Thank you for the opportunity to review the book, which also gave me the opportunity to um, interview Sasha. And um, reading the book and talking to Sasha was a a wonderful thing. Um, again, like Sarah Seeger, the, the humanity side of it is just really fascinating. The book itself is about the ways that we as humans sort of 
rely on rituals, even if we're not religious. And you know, Sasha sort of um, very early in the book points out that really there's an awful lot of science to do with those rituals. You know, those rituals are based on either biological things that are happening, whether it's birth or death or that sort of things, or astronomical and physical things, the position of the sun and the moon. And that's the, the root of a lot of the celebrations and rituals that we have as humans. And it looks at um, rituals from different uh, faiths, different cultures, different belief systems around the world, and shows that there's a lot of uh, similarities between them. You know, we're, we're very similar as people around the world. And what she, Sasha's sort of looking at how we can, uh, if we're not part of, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're, you have no faith whatsoever or you only have one of those faiths that we're talking about. There's very few people who have more than one of the faiths. But So we're all in the same boat, really, when we're looking at these things. And then if you um, can learn from what you can, what can we learn from the way that humans treat our existence, how we look at our existence through rituals, and why is it important? And I have to say, I hadn't thought about it very much before I read the book. I'm, I'm not somebody who sort of likes to think of themselves as attaching too much to ritual. You know, I'm, not, I'm sort of, I'm more likely to say if it's, if it's necessary, if, if duty and tradition the reason why we're doing it then it needs a better reason to do it but um i think that uh what i found from reading the book is that there's an awful lot of beauty to be found in ritual there's an awful lot of beauty to be found in um the way that people do things around the world to celebrate different moments and as we come up to christmas uh we're celebrating it very differently this year obviously um or at least we should be celebrating it very differently this year if normally we share it with a lot of people and um, it's just if you're going to um, take a look at your life your place in the world and your place in the universe you can do uh, very you could do very little better than picking up Sasha Sagan's book uh, for small creatures such as we and I have to say that line is from the book contact by Carl Sagan. Um, That's the other thing I would recommend anybody does this year. (laughs) Go back and read Contact again because it's just brilliant. It is. I I think I especially enjoyed um, in your interview with her, you know, one of the points that she makes, um, Andrew, is that, you know, she, she really discusses this idea of how um you know what what we went with as the headline kind of in the end skepticism without pessimism that's quite hard to say actually it's a good tongue twister skepticism without pessimism and and this idea that if you are skeptical about things such as higher beings and things like that 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 doesn't mean that you can't still see the wonder and the magic in the universe in fact you know and and just because you understand the science that understanding it doesn't take away from the magic of it all doesn't it, in fact for most of us i would say it adds to it it makes it that much more powerful that much more amazing and that's something that absolutely carl sagan always celebrated and it's something that i really loved about about all the things that he and Andrean did together. Oh, absolutely. Um, And I think we should probably just have a little clip 
of my interview with Sasha Sagan. Very poignant that so much of the tension, at least here in the United States, is about science and how we navigate and assess information. And I just always think about, my parents wrote this essay about um, the idea of a baloney detection kit, um, which was a p- baloney being a, a polite word <laughs> um, for something that maybe is more, more, more apt at the moment. This idea of how do we discern what is real and what is true, not what feels good, not what we want to be true, not what makes us feel important, but what is actually provably true outside of our experience. And it's a list, it's easily Googled for those of you who are interested about how to assess what is real and what is true. And um, I think that if we lived in a world where kids in school were taught that and and where questioning was encouraged. That's one of the greatest gifts my parents gave me was that they loved questions. They loved difficult questions. They loved when I asked them a question that they didn't know the answer to. They were not afraid to say, I don't know. They were not afraid to say, let's go look that up. And I think that that is really powerful from a very young age if we can say wait a second why is this like this or is how do you know that this is true this thing you told me or you know these really deep philosophical questions that all children have I mean it's a cliche of like the toddler like why 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 but it's so important and it's so powerful and I think that it's discouraged it gets discouraged I mean parents get annoyed but also they don't want to ask themselves deep, difficult questions. And so people grow up without a clear way to discern what's real and what's not. And right now, you know, in this moment where medical science is the pathway out of a very serious, deadly situation, we need a world who's willing to follow the evidence. The more that we raise a generation of children who have a clear understanding of how to do that and who are not afraid to ask hard questions um, and sometimes uncomfortable questions, I think I think that's the pathway into, into a better future. That is Sasha Sagan, of course, the author of For Small Creatures Such As We. And uh, you can le- hear the rest of that, of course, on the Cosmic Shed podcast, thecosmicshed.com. But this is, of course, the Physics World Stories podcast. This has been the December episode, the last episode of 2020. So we say goodbye to 2020 and hello to 2021, a year of vaccinations and science (laughs) saving the day. And um, I'd like to thank you very much for listening. And Margaret Harris, Kate Gardner and Tushna Commissariat for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you. It's been lovely, Andrew. And I wish you all a very safe and lovely Christmas and New Year. Physics World.